It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome into a solo edition of the Locked On Nets podcast. We are talking player grades and we're starting off with who else but the Nets season MVP, Spencer Dinwiddie. Then we're wrapping up conference finals. All that and more next on Locked on Nets. You are Locked on Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Thanks for joining me for a Friday night edition of the Locked on Nets podcast. Uh, we didn't get out a lot of episodes this week. I, I've been dealing with strep throat. Uh, Josh has been busy with work, but uh, I'm feeling a little bit better. So we're going to record or I'm going to record an episode solo now. And then uh, hopefully uh, I'll get another one done with Josh in the next day or so. So you'll have two for your weekend or if you're one of those people who listens on your commute to and from work, you'll have two waiting in your podcast feed for Monday morning. All right, so since this was a solo one, uh, I needed I needed a topic with a lot of material. So we're going to start off reviewing Spencer Dinwiddie's season, then I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about where I think he can make dramatic improvement this offseason. And then uh, finally, we're going to finish up with probably uh, our longest segment, uh, wrapping up the conference finals. So uh, you can expect all that now on the Locked On Nets podcast. All right, let's get into it. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie. All right, so on the year, 12.5 points, 3 rebounds, 6.5 assists a game, shot 39% from the field, 33% from 3, 81% from the foul line, had a 16 PER career high, uh, nearly 6 win shares. Any Anyone who watched the Nets this season knows you can't totally capture his impact in, in those raw numbers, and they were obviously hurt quite a bit uh, by what was a relatively weak finish this season. But for half the year, Dinwiddie was the heart and soul of this Nets team. And how he played uh, was, I think, probably the best predictor of whether or not the Nets would win a game. Because when he was on, they were a completely different team. He, he was he was the engine. He, he was the straw that stirred the drink. However you want to phrase it, he, he, he was the heart and soul of this Nets basketball team. He, he just played with a special combination of energy, uh, showed off uh, really explosive deep-range shooting, and I I don't know if there were uh, a bigger momentum turner at point. Maybe you could argue for some of Jared Allen's monster dunks that normally Dinwiddie was a guy passing the ball, but I really don't think there were bigger momentum flippers in Nets games this year than Dinwiddie with the shot clock winding down, just nailing a a 27-footer in some poor sap space. That, to me... Uh, were, were kind of the moments that defined this net season. And obviously, Dinwiddie had those memorable games, like when he got his revenge against the Pistons, hit that insane double pump uh, to win that game. And yeah, he was, he, was just, he was just spectacular in the first half of the year. Then obviously, D'Angelo Russell comes back, the ball's out of his hand a little bit more. The Nets weren't necessarily catering to Dinwiddie in terms of pace because he, he was a guy who liked to slow the game down a little bit and just be really clinical with how, how he'd attack a defense. He'd, he'd kind of 
it's funny because, and I think I, I might have mentioned this on one of the last two podcasts, but it's almost like he was doing like a super poor man's LeBron impression because LeBron, uh, if you read that Brian Windhorst article on him, that was really good. Just plays at one of the slowest paces in the league. And to me, obviously, a, a big portion of that is conserving energy, but he's also such a brilliant basketball mind. If, if he slows down for just a second to read the defense, he can essentially predict if I do this, uh, here's what the chain reaction is going to be. And I need to do exactly this to get my team an open layup or three pointer. And you look at the stats throughout the playoffs and, and they really back that phenomenon up. I think I read today that on one on uh, one drives, he has an assist to turnover ratio of 10 to one. And the next highest is like five and a half to one from Rajon Rondo. And, and it's funny because that, that's kind of the same statistic that defined Dinwiddie's year. Uh, he, he was in the top one or two in assist to turnover ratio all season. He finished second in the league this year, and um, I, I and to me like that that's also like a really important factor in Dinwiddie's game uh, because you look at a guy who really didn't shoot the ball particularly well. And that that was my biggest issue with people propping him up for most improved player, and I get that the role was dramatically different, but you look at all of his efficiency numbers, and they really did. Uh, fall off uh, quite drastically. Went from hitting 44 and a half percent of his shots in 16-17 uh, to right around 39 percent last year. From three-point range, he was hovering at about 38, dropped down to 33 this season. Obviously, the true shooting percentage dropped in turn, but the assist-to-turnover ratio really does make up for that. Because what is really a missed shot, if not a turnover, and the fact that he wasn't giving the ball away off the dribble—that that's what really allowed him to still be kind of a plus minus God for this Nets team and be someone who consistently made them a lot better. Uh, speaking of which, he had the second highest net rating out of everyone on the team this year. Um, he was the 14th best point guard in the NBA in terms of real plus minus, which to me that, I mean, I think speaks to his impact more than anything else. And you can't really necessarily look at traditional plus minus metrics because of how poor the Nets were collectively. They don't necessarily reflect just how positive his impact was. But uh, for him to be in the top half of that statistic at what was the deepest position in the NBA and is year after year after year is pretty stunning because there, there are guys in the second half who were all-stars just two or three years ago. Like guys like, I'm not even sure if this is necessarily accurate, but just the type of guy you'd see behind him was like a Jeff Teague type guy. So it gives you a really good idea of, of what echelon did what he put himself in and it also gives you an idea of his upside like i'm, I'm going to get into this a little bit more next segment but if he really gets into good shape and, and gets his shot more consistent then i think the mechanics are there like if he's handling a little bit less of a workload or if he's physically ready to take on that workload which i don't really buy that he was this season then you could see a guy who really ups his efficiency next year and in, in turns in turn in turn in turn not in turn but in turn uh becomes one of the most uh I, I guess it, it's I, I wouldn't say best point guards in the NBA just because, again, there, there's so many guys up top, but I would say one of the most valuable for his team. All right, so that just about wraps up the thoughts I had on Dinwiddie's play this season. Uh, let, let me know when you listen to the podcast whether you want to comment on Twitter or if I post it on the Reddit thread if, if you think there's anything I didn't cover because I'd be, I'd be interested to hear other takes on his year, but in, in, obviously we, we kind of broke down his best plays and best performances in the awards show. But if, there, if there's like an element I'm missing, and I'm always open to it because he's 
again, like a really multifaceted player, and maybe I was missing a reason that he was so good despite his shooting. But I, I wonder I wonder if someone can capture that a little bit better. So feel free to uh, comment on our Twitter posts or uh, comment on uh, in our Nets post if you if you have thoughts on that. All right, we'll take a uh, a quick break uh, to tell you about the rest of the Locked On Nets podcast network. I'd personally be really intrigued uh, to listen to both Locked On Giants and Locked On Jets right now uh, with OTAs going on and, and kind of just in the heat of the offseason uh, with both the draft and free agency just about being finished. Uh, you can kind of get a better idea on what the product on the field is looking like. And obviously for the Giants, there's a ton of excitement around Saquon Barkley right now for the Jets. Sam Darnold also keep an eye on undrafted rookie uh, Dimitri Flowers. I'm, I'm, a, I'm biased, but I'm of the opinion he's going to be a real asset. Uh, for this Jets team at the fullback position. And then, of course, checked out, check out Locked On Yankees, Locked On Mets. Mets got off to an incredible start, fell off a little bit, but intriguing to hear why exactly that's happening and, and how this team can kind of rebuild in the wake of uh, dealing away the dark night. Matt Harvey, that was, for a guy who doesn't really follow baseball, that was uh, kind of a shocker to see how bad he's gotten. Uh, no shots, no shots at Mets fans. Uh, and then uh, Locked On Yankees, uh, what better time to check them out now i uh, have won 17 of their last 19 if you are not on those four podcasts uh well i don't know what to tell you you should uh, check them out immediately the nba playoffs are right around the corner and locked on nba is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama every monday jackson gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league helping to break down the nba playoffs Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thanks for joining us back on the Locked On Nets podcast. I am Gavin Shaw. After four years covering the Phoenix Suns, I moved back to my native New York to give you the latest and greatest a hiccup in the middle of that sentence, on the Brooklyn Nets. All right, uh, so we are talking Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, previous segment, in, in case you missed it. I, I don't know how, how you could have done that or why I'd even suggest that as a possibility. Uh, we, we were talking uh, Spencer Dinwiddie um, and his 2017-18 regular season. And now I want to get a little into where he can improve. And the whole thing is he made such a dramatic leap this past offseason. You kind of have to question how much higher his ceiling is, like how much potential does he have left? Uh, it, it would be like, I mean, asking Dinwiddie to get dramatically better at this point is, is kind of the same thing as asking Victor Oladipo to come back next year and average 33-8-8, which who, who knows, the guy's a freak. He might, might end up doing But I, I think there were obvious ways he could improve. And, and the biggest thing for me was just consistency throughout the season and to figure out if he can play the way he did pre-All-Star break, post-All-Star break. And, and the first thing I look at there is his three-point shooting. hit 34% from range before the All-Star break, 28% after. And I really think his shot not falling took away a lot of his swagger. And it also really robs him of his off-the-dribble game because guys can play back. And I know that doesn't really work against someone like Ben Simmons. But for Dinwiddie, who doesn't necessarily have top-tier athleticism, if you can play back and kind of weight on his drive, it really neuters uh, a big, significant portion of what made him so good. And, and hitting those long threes really gave him an extra swagger, and, and you noticed it because he had a little bit more juice off the dribble, and he was like a little bit more eager to go after people. And, and then after the All-Star break, like this guy who was such an alpha dog and, and willing to take and hit all these 
tough shots. I think at, at a certain point he was he was certainly leading the NBA in, in shot attempts with under a minute left in the game in clutch situations, and I, I think hitting them at, at a pretty significant rate. And you could you could just see with Russell back and with him clearly a little bit worn down that just fell off as the season went on. So I, I really want to see if it's feasible for him to keep that up over a whole year. And to me, like the big things there, and I'm not a strength and conditioning coach, so I guess I don't know exactly what he'd have to do, but I'm assuming a lot of it goes into strengthening his legs, getting into the best cardiovascular shape of his life, whether that means running around uh, Manhattan Beach uh, like Kevin Garnett uh, did in his off seasons, or up a dune like Blake Griffin or Sheepshead Bay if he wants to keep it local, uh, something along those lines. And if you could combine that by con- with continuing to increase explosiveness and continuing to find more consistency on a shot, I-, I think that would make him a really deadly player. Uh, the other thing is I wonder if he can kind of marry his supreme decision-making ability with playing with more pace because we, we saw a lot he'd have to slow down and and kind of think his way through situations before attacking. And as I was talking about last segment, that really worked often for the Nets, but the only issue with that is, and I I give Dinwiddie credit because when there was uh, a passing sequence that would lead to someone getting an open three, he he was smart enough and just quick enough to make that decision rapidly and, and not really stall it out. But if he can continue to improve that ability to make decisions on the fly, I think that could... Uh, really have an exponential effect on his teammates. Uh, just because, they, and you notice this with LeBron too, and, and you sometimes question why guys like Kevin Love uh, struggle playing next to him, and it's because guys get out of rhythm when one player's dominating the basketball and you don't really get to feel the touch of the ball, and it's it's somewhat of an intangible thing, but it seems like it's well quantified at this point. It's something that really does impact guys and, and logically like anyone who's ever played pickup like it makes a ton of sense when you're not touching the basketball you're not necessarily the same guy you're not playing with the same confidence and it's harder to just get it uh, on a kick out and immediately be in rhythm and, and ready to drain a three for your for your teammates so I think that is is really going to be a significant part of his game and, and this was a guy who already I mean right after Damari Carroll had had the second best positive impact for this Nets team when he was on the court. So if he can really perfect that part of his game, he can take that to another level and again as we mentioned last segment potentially become one of the most impactful point guards in the NBA and someone who's going to force his way into a starting role even even with uh Jeremy Lin and D'Angelo Russell in town. All right, uh, two other smaller things. Uh, I would say that he has to start uh, taking some of the pull-ups out of his game, or at least be more judicious with when he uses them, because obviously that was kind of a cutthroat shot, and he'd occasionally have, again, it's like a, it's like a Steph Curry effect when a guy just dribbles down and hit a, hits the 30-footer. It's natural for that to demoralize the opposition, but he only shot 33% on pull-ups this year, and, and a lot of that was because at times he'd do it when he was really, really well-guarded. Like I don't mind it necessarily when it's at the end of a heat check or if you're on a two-on-one fast break and you feel like you're totally in rhythm, but when he just dribble into it with a guy right on him, I get kind of frustrated because even with the elevated pace the Nets play, they don't really have enough of a talent advantage to justify wasting possessions like that. So I, I would really think that would potentially uh, do wonders for his game. And then uh, the fourth thing, and I mean, this is kind of counterintuitive to what the Nets do, but he was a terrible mid-range scorer last season. 
And I think his his ability to improve that, it, it would just add another threat to his game. And obviously, it's the one area on the court teams don't really guard him. And if he could just uh, pull up going full force to the rim, and that's not really necessarily the most efficient shot. And you see a guy like Russell Westbrook, who theoretically should have uh, the greatest advantage on that type of shot in basketball because teams are playing back on him like no other player in the league because they're scared of getting blown by. Uh, he could he could really he could really turn that into an asset in uh, last second scenarios and at the end of games, and that would really be the time to pull that out, or or I guess at the end of shot clocks. Uh, similarly, but that was just that was just an idea. I wouldn't necessarily make it his greatest priority, but it, it's it's something that could make him a better player. All right, I was initially going to wrap this one up, uh, breaking down uh, the conference semifinals and my thoughts on them, but I I figured we'd push that back a day because uh, we got some related breaking news to that uh, today that Dwayne Casey. Uh, got fired from the Toronto Raptors, so I'm going to throw it uh, over to Locked On Raptors host Sean Woodley, a guy we had on the podcast earlier this season, a really talented broadcaster and someone who is as familiar with that Raptors team as anyone in the country, and that country is Canada because that's where he's from. All right, uh, without further ado, Sean Woodley on Dwayne Casey, potentially the NBA's coach of the year. Getting fired. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey, how's it going? This is Sean Woodley, the host of Locked On Raptors, here to break down the breaking news that Dwayne Casey, the seven-year head coach of the Toronto Raptors, has been let go by the team. This coming, of course, after they were swept for the second straight season by LeBron James and the Cavs. And there is a lot to get into with this. It is a decision that is sort of surprising, but at the same time isn't. Of course, like I don't think anyone could point to the series where the Raptors got swept by the Cavs and say that was all Dwayne Casey's fault. I think a lot of it is just LeBron is LeBron, and he is a powerful singular force who has owned not just the Raptors, but pretty much every other team in the Eastern Conference over the last decade. So I don't think it's a shocker that the Raptors were unable to sort of crack that nut. But I do sort of understand it from the perspective that you know, he didn't have a great series. It was a, it was a tough time. He did not have a defensive game plan that was well-crafted to stopping LeBron. And I think that kind of speaks to the larger issue of Dwayne Casey, which has always kind of been the thing with him, is that he's not the best tactical coach in the world. He is a very good, maybe one of the very best in the league at being a big-picture relationships guy, and he did an excellent job of that. When he was hired by the Raptors, the Raptors were in the middle of nowhere, absolutely listless as a franchise, and I think the decision to hire him was built, you know, a lot around his ability to sort of connect with players and build a culture and form good habits, and he did that, and the Raptors have... You know, been the most successful they've ever been under Dwayne Casey. Five years in a row in the playoffs, 50 wins, three seasons straight, 59 wins, of course, this season after completely changing over the offense. And, you know, it's really sad to see Dwayne Casey go. He's a fantastic guy. He is really easy to deal with with the media. And he did a really great job shepherding this team along from a point that... You know, they really weren't supposed to become this good. You know, they were supposed to blow it up in 2013-14. They traded Rudy Gay. Kyle Lowry was almost out the door. And then, you know, after some friction, him and Casey, Lowry and Casey kind of figured things out. 
really sort of established a good bond. And, you know, you see where the Raptors are now. People clown them for losing to the Cavs, but no other team has gotten to play the Cavs in the playoffs three years in a row uh, in the second or third round. And I think it speaks very highly that the Raptors are the team that keeps getting beaten by LeBron, as weird as that sounds. You know, they've gotten further than most teams in the East. They have won more playoff series than any uh, any any team in the league aside from the Cavs and Warriors over the last three seasons. So I think it's, you know, you can clown them all you want, but in, in, in the grand scheme of things, the Raptors have become one of the more you know successful, stable model franchises in the NBA, and a lot of that has to do with Dwayne Casey. So moving on from him does seem like a bit of a strange pivot. At the same time, I do think there there is some reason to it. And I think, you know, part of the reason that, you know, I think the reflection of Dwayne Casey is that he's been so successful at building the culture and building the the team from you know the, the ground up and sort of getting this big picture thing just sort of hammered down to its science. Like the Raptors are just a really well run team in the regular season. They win a lot of games for a reason. He's very strict with rotations. He gets guys in roles. They know their roles and they perform them every night. And I think that is honestly sort of the reason that maybe a change is needed in that the Raptors have have grown under Dwayne Casey to a point where. They're no longer in need of a big picture coach anymore. They're in need of someone who's more of a tactical wizard who can kind of look at a series and not take a game or two to adjust, who can kind of, you know, change things up and throw different looks out there that, you know, maybe Dwayne Casey's been a little bit slow to get to in the past. So, you know, I think the next coach is going to be someone who's more of a tactical genius. You know, Jerry Stackhouse is a guy whose name has been thrown out there. I kind of throw Stackhouse just from what I've seen from him at the G League team so far with the Raptors. He's made the finals two years in a row, but I'm not sure sure he's got sort of the tactical acumen that you would want in who's going to be the next head coach you know I think he's probably a guy considering the job he's done as a development coach with the young guys at the G League you'd probably want for a younger team and if the Raptors are going to blow it all up and trade away Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan, Serge Ibaka, Jonas Valanciunas then maybe Stackhouse is the guy but I do think Casey getting fired kind of sense it gives me the sense at least and this could change of course but I do get the sense that, you know, DeRozan, Lowry, you know, whoever else is going to be back next season for one last kick with a new coach. Hopefully a new message message comes across. It's a way to sell it to the fan base that you're bringing back the same team that just got swept two years in a row, but it's going to have a different coach at the, at the helm. And I do think that coach is going to be more of a tactical guy who is more sort of, you know, lauded for his in-game expertise as opposed to more of a big picture thing. Because I, th- I think the Raptors at this point probably believe that their franchise is stable enough and, you know, has come far enough and is, is strong enough you know, as a culture and just sort of a, as, a, as an organization as a whole, that they can withstand not having a guy like Dwayne Casey to be the head coach who is so good at the big picture stuff. So guys I'm thinking about, Nick Nurse is the lead assistant for the Raptors right now. He was sort of the architect of the offensive change the Raptors did this season. And, you know, it worked really well. And he his playbook is deep. It's, it's advanced. And he has been on the sort of short list of coaching candidates for a little while. He's interviewed for a couple jobs here and there. Uh, so I'd expect him to get a long look. And then also the report coming out from Mark Stein and others is that uh, Mike Budenholzer is also someone that's high on Masai Ujiri's list. Uh, I, you know, people joke about Mike Budenholzer and sort of what happened with the Hawks this season. I think it would make some sense as long as he's not getting any sort of, you know, general managership of the team. I think that's probably what they would want to steer away from. If he's looking for complete power like he wanted in Atlanta, maybe that'll be a difficult sell for him. And I think that would be a difficult sell for the Raptors as well on their end. Um, But, you know, a guy like Budenholzer who, you know, while the, the Hawks were sort of known as this egalitarian, fun-loving team back in 2015 when they won 60 games, they were the second-best defense in the league. And maybe you can sort of count on Budenholzer to craft a better scheme to maybe go up against LeBron James. Here's the thing. No Raptors coach is changing the Raptors' forces against LeBron James unless LeBron James becomes a worse player, which doesn't seem to be on the horizon anytime soon. This, I think, is very 
very much a PR move to try to sell the team, sell to the fans that the team coming back is going to have at least a bit of a different voice and maybe sell it as some sort of way to get around LeBron. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think any new coach is scheming around LeBron James, but uh, I do kind of understand the, 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 the pivot here to maybe go from a bigger picture guy to a more tactical guy. I really do think that's what it comes down to. Um, Dwayne Casey was a fantastic coach. He's going to be missed uh, by a lot of people in Toronto. And, you know, it's a big risk. There's a good chance that the next coach is not as good a coach as Dwayne Casey. And I think Casey should be scooped up by some other team almost immediately. I would bet like Orlando with Jeff Weltman, who was the Raptors GM last season. Maybe that's a candidate there. Um, and, you know, he's going to be caught, he's going to be picked up soon because he's an excellent coach. And any team that is in sort of disarray and needs to establish a culture should be calling up Dwayne Casey right this minute to get an interview set up. That's all I got on this for now. Check out Locked on Raptors. I'll have a full episode about all of this. We'll get into all the different angles of sort of the optics of the Dwayne Casey firing and sort of where to go from here, what kind of candidate the Raptors should be looking for, and uh, maybe throw some names out there and maybe, you know, sort of hypothesize what, what else we're going to see from this offseason, which apparently is going to feature lots of change for the Raptors, a team that has not changed a whole lot uh, in, in a bunch of years. So interesting times ahead for the Raptors. You can hear it all on Locked on Raptors uh, with myself, Sean Woodley, and thanks for tuning in. All right, really appreciate it, Sean. That is it for this edition of the Locked On Nets podcast. Again, we will be back in your podcast feed tomorrow morning. Thanks for listening. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. 